handout in front of you. And you'll see a picture at the top of that handout. It's a picture of two remarkable ladies from Iran, Miriam and Marzier. They were caught distributing more than 20,000 Bibles in Tehran. When they were caught, they were beaten, imprisoned and sentenced to death. Sporadically in prison, they would be dragged before a judge who grew increasingly frustrated with them. He said, all you need to do to save your lives is to deny Jesus. To which Miriam and Marzier said this, you don't understand. We don't fear death. We fear a life without faith, a life without our saviour Jesus Christ. For the sake of momentary convenience, Miriam and Marzier would not convert. They stood in the face of a hostile culture, in one of the most confrontational places on the planet, because what they had learnt was that faith in Jesus is more precious than gold. That's what I want us to see as we study the book of 1 Peter, I don't actually expect many of us, if any of us at all, to be as brave as Miriam and Marzia. I'm certainly not. But my prayer and my hope is that we can capture their passion. We can see that faith in Jesus is worth everything. That's what we see in the opening words of Peter's letter as he tells us who he's writing to and in doing so he defines who Christians are. Peter starts his letter and says if you are a Christian you are a scattered exile. Peter an apostle of Jesus Christ to God's elect exiles scattered throughout the provinces of Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia and Bithynia. Here is Peter Writing to people who didn't belong. Writing to people living on the margins, who were rejected by society, treated with suspicion, who didn't fit in. And he says to them, exactly, that is who you are. If you're a Christian here this evening, this afternoon, you are an exile in this world. A stranger in this culture. There is something about you that means you won't fit in. That means people will think you're weird. If you're a Christian, it means you're different. So can I ask you this afternoon, is faith in Jesus so important to you that you're prepared to be an exile. Where do your deepest loyalties lie? Is your faith in Jesus more precious than gold? Or is the approval of the world, the comfort of this life, more important than him? Peter's readers were used to... Yes, Johnny. Okay, I mean, it's not the end of the world, but if you do want to hand out at the end, please do grab, please do grab one. 
You see, Peter's writing to readers who lived life on the margins. They were used to being mocked. They were used to thinly veiled contempt. They were used to mocking glances. But what about us? Are we, 21st century Christians, prepared to be exiles? Can I say increasingly in this culture, being a Christian puts us outside the bounds of acceptability. It will do. If people discover we're Christians who take the Bible seriously, it's no longer actually pity or even disdain. It's possibly outrage that we'll face. You see, Nowadays, what I'm saying is to be a Christian in this country will increasingly feel like being one of the bad guys. And if you don't believe me, go into the world and speak about what the Bible says about identity or sexual practice or abortion and see what response you get. This is sobering for us to think about. But as I've been reflecting on 1 Peter, a thought has come to me. There may well be people in this room, there may well be people in this room who in 10 years' time will no longer call themselves Christians because they would rather be thought of as good than God's. That may happen. Are we prepared to be in exile? It's not easy for me to say that. But tonight we're going to look at a paradox because did you notice we're not just exiles. We are exiles who are scattered. Peter's writing to people who don't fit in, who are on the margins. And yet he's writing to people who were located in a specific place. In a particular location, they are scattered, the NIV says. In other translations, it says they are in the dispersion, living in Turkey. The word literally means this, sown abroad. If you're a Christian, you're an exile who has been sown abroad, who has been scattered by the sower. Peter is saying, yes, you're exiles. Yes, you're different. But you are exactly where God wants you to be. You are not of the world, but you are in the world to make a difference. God has put you where he has put you in order that you might be a light, in order that you might be distinct, that you might be a transforming presence. So here's the paradox for us this afternoon. We are not of this world. We're not shaped by it. And yet we are in it, serving it, loving it, blessing it, doing everything we can to bring God's life to those who we have been placed next to. It was summarised by one of the early church writers in the epistle to Diognetus. Christians live in their respective countries, but only as resident aliens. They participate in all things as citizens and they enjoy endure all things as foreigners. 
They are found in the flesh, but do not live according to the flesh. They live on earth, but participate in the life of heaven. They love everyone and are persecuted by all. They are put to death and made alive. They are impoverished and make many rich. They lack all things and abound in everything. Peter fleshes out this paradox for us in the rest of this letter. As we'll see in the coming weeks, he says this. This is how scattered exiles should live. Gently, but boldly. Hope-filled, yet fearful. Humble, yet speaking with authority. Separate from the world, yet incredibly, incredibly welcoming and loving in it. Unsettled, but putting down roots. Challenging, yet respectful. Distinct, but embracing. That's what Peter is calling us to now, this afternoon. And that's why 1 Peter is a letter for all of us, because I'm sure we all fall down on one side of that paradox, don't we? Some of us will struggle to be exiles. We don't want to be thought of as the bad people. Others others of us are too reluctant to turn our exile into dispersion, to take our exile and make it commission, to take our exile and turn it into service. And 1 Peter is saying to us, you need to do both. You need to recognise that you don't fit in, but precisely because you don't fit in, you can change the world. Now you might be saying... Oh, thanks. Like I'm coming to church to get encouragement and you're giving me this, what? You're also thinking that's only two words in that passage. I hope we hurry up and we will. But can I say to you, I, I feel unsettled by this. I feel unsettled by this reality, by this calling. I would rather just be liked and have a comfortable life. And Peter knows that and that's why he goes where he does. You see... I'm thinking, how on earth can I live this paradox out? I fail every day. It feels impossible to do this. And Peter doesn't say, well, here's the things you need to do first and foremost. He starts where the Bible always starts. By telling us what God has done. By saying to us, you are only living out this paradox in and through God your Saviour. You may have noticed I missed a word out. Yes, we're scattered exiles. But Peter says we are elect exiles. Chosen migrants. Selected strangers. Rescued refugees. Everything we do is in and through the life of God. We live our existence within the bounds of God, the Holy Trinity. Did you notice that in verse 2? You have been chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father through the sanctifying work of the Spirit to be obedient to Jesus Christ and sprinkled with his blood. Peter's saying before anything else, as you begin to worry about living distinctly, let me tell you this. God the Father knows you. Before anything else, that is what defines you. The God who made all things loves you. Your identity is in him. 
But more than that, God the Father knows you and God the Holy Spirit has set you apart. You don't need to this evening go out and try and be an exile. You already are an exile who has been called out into exile with God the Holy Spirit living in your heart. You are never on your own as an exile. You are never on your own. And when you fail, when you fail like Peter did in the Gospels, and you think there is no hope for me because my life hasn't been shaped by this pattern of exile and scattering, the work of God the Son forgives you for all your sins. No ifs, no buts. No matter what you've done this past week, Jesus' blood washes you clean. Jesus takes you at your worst and gives you his best. And so Peter says, live as scattered exiles, but only in the strength of God. Live as scattered exiles, but only as God the Holy Spirit takes you by the hand and lifts you up and washes you clean with the sanctifying blood of Jesus. So in the rest of our time, I just want to give three motivations that Peter gives to us in these opening 12 verses. Three motivations that encourage us to live out this paradox as exiles scattered into the world. Three things. Firstly, notice Peter says, you do that always with a future hope, verses three to five. Praise be to the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. In his great mercy, he has given us new birth into a living hope through the resurrection of Jesus Christ from the dead and into an inheritance that can never perish, spoil or fade. This inheritance is kept in heaven for you who through faith are shielded by God's power until the coming of the salvation that is ready to be revealed in the last time. Peter's readers would have known what it was like to have their inheritance snatched away from them. And maybe for you, at the different stages you're in, your future feels fragile. And maybe you're tempted at times to think, well, actually, I could just, I could just make some compromises and make my life easier. And Peter says this, God has a future in store for you that will blow your mind. God is preparing something for you that you cannot even imagine and no one can snatch it away from you. No one can take it from you. And that's hard for us to imagine because everything we know in life and everything we hold dear in life eventually dies or is defiled or loses its capacity to captivate and in rapture. And as Chris said at the start, our inheritance that God is preparing for us is untouched by death, unstained by evil and unimpaired by time. God is preparing a future for you that will blow your mind. And what we'll see as we read through 1 Peter's letter is yes, lots and lots of challenges Living as a Christian is difficult. But can I tell you this? To be a Christian is to be the luckiest person in the world. 
There is no one more blessed than us in Oxford this afternoon. There is no one who has a hope that is undefiled and that won't perish apart from us. Now, temperamentally, you may be glass half full or glass half empty. It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter what your temperament is as a Christian. Wherever you sit on that spectrum, you have a living hope, a future hope that sustains you, a future hope that is real and tangible. And because our future hope is secure, we can begin to live out the paradox of being exiles who are scattered. Let me just say this briefly. We'll look at this in much more detail next week. But one of the realities that these verses are saying to us is is this. If you're a Christian, you have a future hope. The hope of glory and heaven and comfort and security. But that future hope is breaking into the present now. That's why Peter takes us to the resurrection of Jesus. He's not saying someday there will be a resurrection and things will be different. He's saying there already has been a resurrection and things are different for you now. That future hope has broken into the present and it shapes everything for us. We have a future hope so we can live as scattered exiles. But as scattered exiles, Peter says, you will need and let me promise you, you have present help. So he says, in all this, verse 6, you greatly rejoice, though now for a little while you may have had to suffer grief in all kinds of trials. These have come so that the proven genuineness of your faith of greater worth than gold, which perishes even though refined by fire, may result in praise, glory and honour when Jesus Christ is revealed. Peter's not saying, and I'm not saying, that being a Christian is easy. And you just need to suck it up. And that if you find it hard, you're not trying hard enough. No, what Peter is saying is this calling is really difficult. Christians aren't logs of wood without normal feelings. We aren't unaffected by sorrow or unafraid of danger or unhurt by poverty. It's hard. It's difficult. And Peter goes on through this letter. He presents us in many ways with 10 sorts of trials. Let me just list them for you. The passions of the flesh. False accusation. People in difficult work situations. Women in difficult marriages. Christians who are persecuted. Being ridiculed for not leading debauched lives. Facing fiery trials. Taking insults because we're Christians. Anxiety, attacks from the devil. Most of these aren't because we're sinning or failing. They're the reality of living in a broken world. Peter's not saying the Christian life is easy. He's saying it's really difficult. But as you find it difficult, as you go into the crucible of suffering... God uses that in ways we can't imagine. As you go into the crucible of suffering, you never go in on your own. God 
is with you. He's alongside you. Peter's echoing in these verses what the rest of the Bible says. Your Christian faith is refined by, is strengthened, is improved, is made more humble, is increased in value as you suffer. I think one of the most remarkable Christians of the last hundred years was a lady called Helen Rosevere. She actually came to our school when she, about two years before she died, she came and did a presentation day for us at school. She was a missionary doctor in the Congo. And if you read her life, it will, it will break you. Because what she faced and suffered was awful. She said this in her diary, I was beyond praying. If I had prayed, it would have been, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? And yet in the darkness and loneliness, he met with me. He was right there. A great, wonderful, almighty God. His love enveloped me. Slowly the why dropped away from me. And an unbelievable peace flowed in, even in the midst of the wickedness. And he breathed a word into my troubled mind, the word of privilege. These are not your sufferings. They are not beating you. These are my sufferings. All I ask of you is the loan of your body. Our suffering doesn't make us perfect. It's never easy. But what it does is ends up creating a relationship with Jesus without the peripheral peripheral elements. It, It kind of strips us back. So that all we have is Christ. So Peter can say, though you have not seen him, you love him. And even though you do not see him now, you believe in him and are filled with an inexpressible and glorious joy. For you are receiving the end result of your faith, the salvation of your souls. You see, this is what happens when we suffer as Christians. Everything else disappears. And Jesus is still there. If you're not a Christian, I'm not doing a good job of selling Christianity to you in some senses, am I? Become a Christian and become an exile who suffers. But speak to any Christian in this room and they would say suffering is not easier as a Christian. But life tastes sweeter through the crucible of suffering. Many of you will have heard me talk about this over the last five years. But I'll say it again. One of the most transformative experiences in my Christian life has been the journey of infertility. The journey of weeping over failed pregnancy tests. The humiliation of waiting for results from fertility investigations. The conflicted feelings of seeing friends build families. The terror of Emma going into hospital miscarrying. The long and agonising wait through the process of adoption where your life is under a microscope. 
And yet, can I say, I wouldn't change any of that for the world. I would not change any of that for the world because in each of those moments, God has always been faithful. He has always been present, even if it didn't feel like it at times. And he has always been painting on a canvas far bigger than I can see. (laughs) Now, our journey of infertility has a happy ending. Some people's don't. But maybe that's because I couldn't handle it. Maybe that's because God has given me what I can cope with. You see, can I add a caveat to what I'm saying here? I think the temptation is for us to leave tonight and just beat ourselves up and to say, I'm not suffering enough, I must suffer more. Please, don't go out of your way to suffer in order to save yourself. You don't need to. You're sitting here thinking, James, thanks for these nice illustrations, Helen Rosevere, Miriam and Marzier. I could never be like them. I could never do what they did, nor could I. I promise you, my life could not hold a candle to their lives, to the light that they've shined. It couldn't. But God isn't asking me to live their life. God isn't asking you to live someone else's life. He's asking you to live your life. So Jesus says, sufficient for the day is the trouble they're in. What he means is, what you face is the suffering that God is giving you, is the suffering that's bringing you closer to him. So you say, well, James, I just couldn't be persecuted. All I can think about is getting through the day. And God says, exactly. That's all I'm calling you to do. Don't think that you need to validate yourself by suffering more than what God puts on your plate. What you're facing is not to make you a Christian. What you're facing is to draw you into greater intimacy with Jesus, to see that when everything else is stripped back, Jesus is still there. Don't beat yourselves up, please. Don't do it. Do what God is calling you to tomorrow. And in 10 years' time, who knows what suffering you might be able to endure. But just endure what you have to tomorrow. Don't validate yourself by suffering. And finally, and very briefly, Peter says, it's difficult living as exiles who are scattered, but we have a hope that is imperishable. We have God's present help. And all of that is based on a past reality. Verses 10 to 12. Concerning this salvation, the prophets who spoke of the grace that was to come come to you searched intently and with the greatest care, trying to find out the time and circumstances to which the Spirit of Christ in them was pointing when he predicted the sufferings of the Messiah and the glories that would follow. It was revealed to them that they were not serving themselves but you when they spoke of the things that have now been told you by those who have preached the gospel to you by the Holy Spirit sent from heaven. Peter's saying, you can be a scattered exile because it was always the plan for you to be that. Jesus' death was not a second thought on God's part. It wasn't a reaction. 
Jesus' death was always the plan. You, being here today, leaving this place and thinking, I want to live as a scattered exile, is not a second thought by God. You're not an afterthought for God. You have always been part of his plan. Did you notice it was revealed to the prophets for your benefit? Moses lived his life and experienced what he did for your benefit. That you might leave today and live as a scattered exile. You see, your identity in Christ is not based on how you perform tomorrow. It's based on God's eternal plan. God's affection for you doesn't wax and wane like your affection for him. He radiates love for you. When he sees you, he smiles. When he hears your voice, he stops heaven so that he can listen. When you weep, he stoops down and wipes the tears from your cheek. It's always been his plan to do so. And Peter says, even angels long to look into these things. The angels look at us this evening and they're like, what is going on? What on earth? Because they know how big God is. And they're like, you? Interested in them? Uh, J.B. Phillips, he lived about 100 years ago. He wrote in one of his books, imagining a conversation between two angels. The senior angel is taking the, the junior angel out for a trip. And he's saying, let me show you the world. Let me show you the, the universe. So he sees whirling galaxies and blazing suns. And then the senior angel turns and he says, just hang on a second. Do you see that small, insignificant sphere turning very slowly on its axis? And the little angel says this, well, it looks very small and rather dirty to me. What's special about that one? That's the visited planet. Visited? You mean visited by... Indeed I do. But how? Do you mean that our great and glorious prince, with all the wonders and splendours of his creation, went down in person to this fifth-rate little ball? Do you mean to tell me that he stooped so low as to become one of those creeping, crawling creatures of that floating ball? I do. And I don't think he would like you to call them creeping, crawling creatures in that tone of voice. For strange as it may seem to us, he loves them. He went down to visit them, to lift them up, to become like him. Even angels long to look into these things. To be a Christian is to be the luckiest person on the planet and just as the angels praise God perpetually in astonishment, we too should be astonished. I didn't say this. In the Greek, verses 3 to 12 is one sentence. Just one sentence overflowing with praise. It's as if Peter just can't get his words out. He's like, but I just want to say another thing and another thing and another thing and another thing. Because God is that good. And I couldn't do it without him, but by his grace I can. And all I want to do, 
All I want to do is praise him and thank him that he would love little old me. That he would look at me and all my mess and patheticness and he would lift me up that I might become like him. Our measure as God's people, as scattered exiles, is not the gifts we possess, but the praises we offer. Not the gifts we possess, but the praises we offer. So let me pray and then let's sing together, crown him majesty.